0: This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author and activist Julia Serrano is joined by CIIS Professor Zara Zimbardo for a conversation about how to make feminist and queer movements more inclusive. This event was recorded on May 24th, 2018 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu podcast. Well, Juliette,
1: Welcome, and thank you so much for taking the time to spend with us this evening. Happy to be here. So glad to have you here and to have you back here. I think <laughs> you were here a couple or a few years ago. Yes, I was. Um, well, so as just shared uh, in your bio, you wear a wide range of interdisciplinary hats as an artist, activist, musician, biologist, cultural critic, public intellectual, author, speaker. Um Curious to ask how you're spending your time these days, or how you're feeling called to dedicate your energy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Kind of all over the place. Uh (laughs) Um,
2: Maybe uh, you mentioning all the different things I do sort of uh, kind of indicates. Um, Yeah, I'm working on several different future book projects and doing some music. And from time to time, when I'm so moved by whatever's happening in the world, I'll out an essay or two mm-hmm. um, so yeah so I would say that I feel like I'm a bit of a shepherd kind of I have these different projects and mm-hmm. sort of moving them all slowly um, hopefully towards completion <laughs>
1: um, so I would like to um, open uh, with just taking the time for some really foundational basic operating definitions um, to, because there's power in, you know, not taking for granted being on the same page, taking that time to get on the same page, Um, for some key shared understandings, um, because clearly, as you often point out, some of the lack of those shared understandings can distort communication and theory. So um, if I could ask you to please share what are some key um, core understandings of sex and gender. Sure. Okay, so <laughs> um, so sex and gender are two
2: words that most people use synonymously with each other. Um, and for most people, it just refers to whether you're male or a man versus being female or a woman. Um, but actually, things are a little bit more complicated than that. Um, and some people, maybe like the next step up from that would be to separate out Sex and gender. So people believe in a sex-gender distinction. Will stress the fact that sex refers to the physical or the anatomical aspects, mm-hmm. and that gender um, refers to more social-related aspects. But actually, each of those terms, on their own, both comprise multiple um, additional things, and that you can't really peel them apart as easily as some people would like to peel them apart. Mm. So for instance, when you say sex, for a lot of people that just seems like this really straightforward thing, like are you male or female? But there are a lot of different sex attributes, whether it's genetics or chromosomes, whether it's reproductive or genital aspects of anatomy. Um, there are also secondary sex characteristics, um, which are the ones that come on during puberty in response to the sex hormones, so like facial hair or breast development. Um, so there are all those different sex attributes. And each one of those attributes, there's a lot of variation amongst people. Um, so each of those attributes are not necessarily clearly male or female in all people. And then within any given person, they might not all line up. Um, So there's a lot of diversity there. Um, With regards to there are people who are intersex, for whom um, basically aspects of sex, um, certain aspects, may not fit into what is considered standard, in scare quotes, (laughs) um, for male or female in our society. And obviously a lot of transgender people, which is this other word that's a spectrum of people who in different ways defy gender norms. Um, Some transgender people um, may take steps to change their sex characteristics. So that's all sex. And then with regards to gender, gender can mean a lot of different things too. Um, It can refer to your gender identity, which is how you see yourself. Do you identify as a man or a woman, or as neither, nor, or some combination thereof? Um, Gender can also refer to um, how we move through the world, whether you move through the world um, as a man or as a woman in a world where people kind of force you to pick one or they read you one way or another, whether you want them to or not. Um, There are also, um, there's what's often referred to as gender expression, which would be whether your um, behaviors, mannerisms, um, presentation, interests um, are understood by people to be either masculine or feminine or some combination thereof. Um, And then there's uh, also gender roles. So, for instance, like if you're a mother or a husband, like those are. Roles that we might play in our lives that often have gender um, woven into them. So, on top of all that, not only are our gender and sex both um, really varied, but you can't really separate them out completely because we each, each and every single one of us in this country has a legal sex, right, which mm-hmm. is basically a, a, a social category. That refers to sex Um, and there are also aspects of um, our gender and our sex that you know there are aspects that might be biological or have biological influence and there might be aspects that are cultural or that are shaped by our language um, and traditions so basically it's a very very complicated thing sex and gender but those are some of the basic definitions Mm,
1: thank you sure Um, and you Say or write, you know, we can say that biological sex differences exist and also that our understanding of sex is socially constructed. These are not contradictory statements at all. Um, could you speak a little bit about how you see the term socially constructed or social construction being used in ways that are perhaps both helpful and problematic or mystifying? Sure, yeah. So
2: social construction is this idea that has come out of. Um, Sociology and the humanities. And what it refers to is the fact that the world that we see around us isn't just out there and that we're viewing it naturally in its, you know, pure unadulterated form. Actually, everything around us, including sex and gender, are socially constructed, meaning that you know we grow up in a culture where there are ideas about it, where things are categorized in particular ways, that they might not be categorized in other cultures um, the same way, um, where language and the meanings that we've put into various categories or types of people, um, all of this has a lot of influence and and literally shapes how we view the world. So if you're talking about, say, sex or gender being socially constructed, that's all you're saying, that um, these are things that we can't completely step out and view in an unadulterated fashion. Um, The problem is that for a lot of people, the term constructed sounds like you're saying, like, artificial, or it's completely invented or made up, or it's just a social artifact. It doesn't really exist. Exactly, yeah. yeah. And so a lot of times people will push back on social construction, um, the idea that people might assume that you're saying that these things aren't real. Um, so that's happening on the one end. And then on the other end, sometimes people who are very pro-social construction will use it to actually suggest these things, like, you know, oh, gender is socially constructed, therefore we can, you know, it doesn't matter. We can do our genders whatever way we want to. And so I think that sometimes those ideas can be oversimplistic, um, and those can cause some problems too. So, so yeah, but so socially constructed just means that it's, our society, our culture, shapes how we see the world, not that our world doesn't actually exist. <laughs>
1: um, and we you know live in an ideological world that's very much shaped by binary constructions um, as these kind of giant monolithic categories that can oftentimes be reductionist or flattening or normalize certain type of power dynamics there's um some binaries that you uh, deconstruct that seem also helpful in terms of some of this foundational shared understandings, Um, and someone you were just speaking to in terms of biological versus social, body versus mind, um, and also nature versus nurture. Um, Why do you feel that it's important to kind of shake up (laughs) or deconstruct some of these binaries?
2: Sure. I mean, some of it comes from the fact that I sort of straddle two worlds or fields and that um, I am a biologist. Um, That's kind of where my academic credentials come from. Um, And I did that for many years. And I also, since I write a lot about gender and sexuality and society and norms more generally, A lot of times in that field there are different ways of viewing the world and I think that there's this tendency I would say in biology to focus on the nature and not the nurture Um, although that's changing a lot in biology with each year Um, and I would say that also in the past and this is also changing, Um, in the humanities, in sociology, in gender studies, there has been historically uh, a focus on the nurture or on how culture and environment shapes that. And so because I'm straddling both worlds, I find a lot of times the the tendency to only view the world through either the nature lens or the nurture lens to be really, both inaccurate and it creates all sorts of problems, especially when you're talking about something as complicated as sex and gender is. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that has kind of led me to kind of challenge those ideas. And I also think that uh, talking about mind and body, um, which is another, binary dualism that you brought up. A lot of time that comes into play, especially as someone who's transgender, um, who's queer. And I should say that I'm using the word queer in the big umbrella way that activists of the 90s use it um, to refer to people who are gender and sexual minorities or people who fall under the acronym, the LGBTQ plus all the other letters you wanna add to it. Um, so anyway, as a trans person, as a queer person, there are lots of conversations about whether we're born that way, again with the scare quotes, <laughs> um, or whether we kind of naturally develop or we choose to be who we are. And so there are all sorts of um, sometimes very fractured battles about that. And a lot of that is kind of related to the idea of, you know, our mind being separate from our body. Um, and a lot of times they don't really acknowledge the fact that our minds, it's not like we're just minds floating around. It's our... our we're embodied, our minds are embodied, and kind of our bodies have a big impact on our minds and vice Mm -hmm. versa. So anyway, I think it's because of the complicated place I am both when it comes to fields that I'm interested in, but also the complications of my own experience as a trans person um, has
1: kind of led me to challenge a lot of those ideas. Um, And in terms of uh, language, Obviously, this is a huge topic, but language that continues to shift and evolve and emerge and you know be coined. Um, of course, a relatively new term is cis, uh, meaning, right, of course, same side, um, to name forms of cisgender privilege and to name what has often been an unmarked uh, category. Mm-hmm. Um, as well as with the term cissexism. I'm not quite sure how long that term cissexism has been around, um, but could you speak to why it is important to name the system of cissexism? Sure, yeah. yeah. its utility.
2: Um, So so with regards to the language, I first came across it when I was working on my first book, Weapon Girl, um, in 2005, um, from a blog post by Amy Koyama. Mm Um, but apparently this language has been around or has popped up here and there um, throughout the history. In fact, there's some uh, German, I think from like the early 1900s, like a German publication where um, somebody coined something, I think cisvestism or Hmm. something. Um, Anyway, so this language has been around for a bit, when I first used it in *Whipping Girl, it was still very new to me, and when I would use it, not a lot of people had picked up on it or, or knew what I was talking about. <laughs> um, and, and since it has become more popularized and it's come into the um, our everyday language more and more, particularly the term cisgender, mm-hmm. um, to refer to people who are not transgender. And... I should say a lot of times people have a sort of knee-jerk negative reaction to cisgender. Like if you say, oh, you're a cisgender woman, they'll be like, no, I'm not, I'm just a woman. Mm -hmm. And it's like, actually, cisgender doesn't mean that you're not a woman. I I think a lot of it might come from the fact that when we say transgender woman, a lot of times I think people think like, oh, so not really a woman (laughs) or a notch less than a woman. And so when you use cisgender, a lot of times people assume that you're devaluing what comes after it in the same way. Mm-hmm. And in reality, it's cisgender just means not transgender. And the importance for it is that when I was first when I first came out, when I was first doing activism, we didn't have that word. And we are always challenged with the idea that most people, if I'm a transgender woman, it's like, well, what are you? It's like, I'm a real woman. I'm a normal woman, right? Uh, and the category of people who are not transgender is always existed as long as we've had people who we call transgender. And the importance for naming the unmarked group, the dominant unmarked group, is to point out that it's not that trans people are abnormal and that we're this big question that needs to be solved, but rather that there are two types, Mm -hmm. two general groups there's definitely some overlap there. They're not completely discreet. But there are some people who have a transgender experience and some people have not. Um, and it's a way to talk about how the problem isn't with transgender people. But the problem is that in our society, we make this distinction between transgender people and cisgender people. And because we devalue transgender people that, in effect, um, creates advantages for people who are cisgender, or instead of advantages, you could say privilege, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and this is not obviously not something that transgender people invented. Um, pretty much every marginalized group at some point names the unmarked dominant group, and it becomes really important to talk about that because both parties are equally invested, whether they know it or not, in uh, whatever types of um, hierarchies are going on. So in the case of cisgender versus transgender people, um, cis is the term that people would use to describe that system that um, devalues trans people
1: and advantages um,
2: cis people um, in return. Mm-hmm.
1: There's a number of um, arguments that it seems that you regularly need to address and challenge and debunk, um, and in some... Uh, of your recent writing, you were really taking to task and debunking um, the trans women are not women argument, and on a related note, the trans women are not feminists or are not true feminist argument. Um, Could you please, I was gonna say destroy, um, (laughs) uh, <laughs> destroy de- is okay. Destroy slash uh, <laughs> deconstruct what's going on with that line of reasoning. Um, and on this note in terms of talking about challenging cis-sexism, what are some of the cis-sexist double standards that are at work
2: sure. Um so I, I think I'll start by kind of going into the past <laughs> and and talking about how a lot of these ideas Um, have been around for a very long time. In fact, during uh, what we call second wave feminism now, feminism of the 60s and the 70s, um, around that time there were debates about transgender people. Even though there are transgender people, um, there's a lot less awareness publicly of trans people. Um, There are debates within feminism about the existence of trans people, whether trans women are women. Um, A lot of these debates tend to focus on trans women, um, and there's this tendency within topics regarding transgender people more generally, where people on the trans female, trans feminine spectrum, such as myself, tend to get all the attention, and often a lot of the demonization and sensationalization, whereas people in the trans male, trans masculine spectrum are often um, invisibilized or erased. Um, And that was true both back then um, during second wave feminism to today, right now, where... You know, people talk about bathroom bills and, uh, you know, all these fears about men being in women's restrooms, men meaning trans women like me, and nobody ever talks about the fact that there are transgender men who are men and who look like men who your bathroom bill would basically let them into the bathrooms, right? So, anyway, that's it. Sorry for that divergence there. But anyway, so these ideas have been around for a while, and uh, some feminists, during second wave feminists, not all of them, but some of them, uh, basically decided that that trans women, um, our existence uh, was a threat to feminism or a threat to women and wrote a lot of, um, wrote some books, wrote some essays <laughs> uh, that made certain arguments that still exist to this day. They They still get filtered and there are, I would say, two types of versions of this, there's kind of the hard version where where these are people who a lot of times in certain circles might be called trans-exclusive radical feminists who take a very hardline mm-hmm. view of um, trans people. Um, they're extremely purposefully um, anti-transgender and they actually work um, to thwart progress of transgender people. Um, And then I would say that there's kind of the soft version which are people who are cisgender women who are feminists who don't necessarily know a whole lot about transgender people and kind of have this feeling like well you know I'm not like Caitlyn Jenner. (laughs) Um, It's sort of this like knee-jerk feeling that something's wrong with it and then they either on their own kind of recreate these arguments that have existed for a long time, or they read some of these ideas that have been out there for a while, and they kind of grasp onto them. Um, There's really a whole lot that that I could say. There are a number of different facets of these arguments. I would say on one level, they are... um, Their gut reactions, they're rooted in cissexism. They're rooted in the idea that trans people's um, experiences with gender, our lived experiences, are um, less legitimate than cisgender peoples. Um, So they will say, well, Julia, you can't possibly be a woman. And they will make what I think of as kitchen sink, sink, sink arguments, which is they will use anything that they can. So they might say, well, Julia, you're biologically male. Like, your chromosomes, like, that's like, something forever and you can't change that. And then I will ask, well, um, do you know what your chromosomes are? Like, have you looked at them? Because I haven't looked at mine. I honestly (laughs) don't know what my chromosomes are. I've never had them examined, right? Um, And then, so they will make biological arguments and then they will turn around and then they will say, well, you know, you were raised male and therefore you've been socialized male and you have male privilege. And they will use all these social arguments, even though they completely contradict the biological arguments that they were making like five minutes ago. Um, And so I would say, and and I've written, especially uh, last year particularly, um, in a wave of kind of more recent stories about very mainstream feminists who have taken the, who have have made comments along the lines of trans women aren't women, um, or raising issues of biological sex. Um, I wrote two essays that can be found on Medium for free. One is, called Debunking Trans Women Aren't Women Arguments, and the other one is um, Biological, Transgender People and Biological Sex Myths, I think. Um, Kind of basically reiterating a lot of the same arguments I made in my first book, Whipping Girl, Um, but since they keep coming up again, Mm -hmm. I felt like it was useful to try to tackle them again and make people aware of the fact that um, gender, sex, these are very complicated things. And you can't just make up this whole argument that like trans women aren't women unless you really get into the weeds on these very, very complicated things. And once you get into the weeds, you realize that it's all very, very complicated.
1: <laughs> so yeah. Um, I want to ask, well, as it's in the um, Subtitle of your first book in terms of talking about the scapegoating of femininity about this relationship between how trans misogyny operates and views of femininity as a spectacle or as um, Artificial in some way both in dominant patriarchal Cis hetero patriarchal culture, but also within subcultures of resistance and social movements. Um, how is yeah. that sure. working?
2: So yeah, and so the, um, I'll start with trans misogyny, which is um, an idea that I developed a lot and discussed at great length in Whipping Girl, which is just basically a term t- to refer to the intersection of transphobia and misogyny um, in the lives, particularly of how it plays out in a lot of people, um, trans women and others on the trans female or trans feminine spectrum. Um, and I I think that for a lot of people, it's hard to wrap their brain around trans misogyny. So I'll I'll use this little anecdote that appears in my book excluded just to give you an idea. Um, there was this time a number of years back, I was walking down the street in San Francisco and this trans woman just so happened to be walking in front of me. it's at San Francisco and two trans people just walking down the street who don't know each other is something that happens all the time. And so I'm walking down the street and there's a man and a woman who are sitting on the doorstep. And this woman wasn't, she was dressed femininely but not especially feminine. And as she walked by them, the man turned to the woman he was with and said, can you believe all the shit that he's wearing? Okay, he is what they said. And the woman nodded in agreement with this man and that really struck me because if you're a woman walking down the street you may be harassed men may say things to you okay but it usually isn't going to be referring to the feminine clothing your feminine presentation as shit right similarly if a trans man was walking down the street and they read him as a trans man they might say something transphobic to him but they probably wouldn't call like you know the 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 suit that he's wearing or his t-shirt and jeans shit right What is the shit? (laughs) Shit Mm -hmm. is femininity, right? And I think that that kind of reveals how um, really misogynistic ideas about femininity play into um, how people see trans women. And I would say that whether we are conscious of it or not, we are socialized in a world where we're taught to see femininity as artificial, as contrived, as manipulative, Um, in comparison to masculinity, which is seen as natural and sincere and practical. And I think a lot of these ideas about feminine gender expression being contrived and manipulative um, and artificial is like kind of plays into a lot of people's ideas about transgender people more generally and especially trans women. And so there's this tendency, and, and I write about at great length in Whipping Girl, for people to play up trans women's femininity as a way to, again, paint us as like not really women. And so it's both transphobic, but it's also misogynistic. And this plays out all the time in the mainstream. Um, again, all you have to do is look at a lot of movie depictions are how trans women have historically been shown in the media. Um, But it also often plays out within activist spaces and historically a lot of animosity towards trans people both within feminism, which we touched on a moment ago, but also within um, especially kind of gay and lesbian communities. Um, A lot of that has played up trans women's femininity as a way to say that trans women are like conventional or reinforcing gender gender or parodying women. And so um, these notions that I would just Mm. describe as anti-feminine sentiment or femphobia or whatever term you want to use, this hatred of femininity... um, tends to play out over and over again in a lot of trans women's lives. Even, not all trans women are conventionally feminine, um, but it still shapes the way that people tend to see us.
1: Um, One of the uh, double standards that you raise um, is the way that, an accusation of reinforcing the gender binary system can often be leveled at, t- towards transgender people, um, w- but not towards cisgender people. And so could you talk about what is going on with that, the repetition of, you know, accusing of reinforcing the gender binary system and the c- cis sexist double standard that's at, operating there?
2: Sure. And, and actually, I think I, in, in doing this, I think I'm going to take a more broad take on this. Sure, And I would say that in general, a lot of activists and movements kind of self-conceptualize themselves as being against a system of some sort, right? Like we're against the patriarchy, or the gender binary, or heteronormativity. Um, there's something out there like the system that people who are actu- activists or um, have activist consciousness um, tend to see themselves as the good guys challenging this this evil system. And because of this, there tends to be this notion that people who are different from you, who more often than not are some kind of marked group in whatever setting you're in, um, tend to get construed as upholding or reinforcing the evil system and i first got interested in this when i was working on whipping girl and i was debunking a lot of these ideas and i just came across upon quote after quote after quote about like transgender people or transsexuals reinforcing the gender binary which seems so strange because like when when i come out to people in my day-to-day life like the reactions I get are like surprised or maybe they're uncomfortable or disturbed. But like, I've never gotten like, oh, thank you, Julia. Thank you for reinforcing our gender binary. You know, <laughs> that's so helpful of us, right? Uh, of you, right? And then, and it's also not something that people generally say, like I, I've never seen a queer person or a feminist say, you know, my mom reinforces the gender binary, right? It's this very specific thing. And in thinking about it, um, the things that people would say that I do that reinforce a gender binary are, well, you identify as a woman, or look at you, you're wearing a dress right now, you're reinforcing the gender system. But there are lots of cisgender people, many of whom are like noted feminists, who like identify as women <laughs> and wear dresses. And as, as I uncovered this more and more, I found that whatever group, and there, it's almost always a marginalized group of some sort, they can get conceptualized as holding the whole movement back. And so this is evident in um, more recent accusations that people who are bisexual reinforce the gender binary, because the word bi is in bisexual, and it's also in binary. Um, <laughs> even, though, even though most gay men like, see themselves as like, attracted to one sex and not the other, most hetero people would say, I'm attracted to one sex and not the other. But they don't get accused of that, of course, because they, they're monosexual, they're, they're seen in, um, they are relatively the the dominant group compared to the marked group being bisexuals. Um, It happens with people who are feminine, right? Uh, Feminine people have been accused of reinforcing the gender system, but people don't accuse masculine people of that. And if you go far enough back to uh, second wave feminism during radical feminism, there were accusations that um, lesbians reinforced the sex class system. Like, that's the actual quote people used. So this is a really, really old idea, and I think it's something that comes up in activist circles, and I feel like it's uh, it's it's horrible for multiple reasons. One is, I think we should agree that none of us really gets to pick our gender and sexuality. Like, I think we should be at the point now where it's like, oh yeah, let's just agree that sex, gender, and sexuality are all very varied, <coughs> and like, it's, let's not accuse people of like, hey, the way you're doing g- gender is wrong. I mean, that's exactly what the, the straight mainstream would, would accuse us of. Um, and I think it also ends up making smaller movements with more distorted agendas, where instead of like saying, hey, let's get everybody together who wants to challenge sexism and other forms of marginalization and let's make a movement. Instead, you're essentially saying, uh, people who are doing their their genders or sexualities weird to my eyes, that like they're reinforcing the
1: system and they can't be here, so. Right. Yeah. (laughs) Well, and on that note, in terms of social movements that are fighting for a more liberated and free and just world, um, or that began in an expansive way, but over time can become a bit more rigid or controlling or intolerant or have internal policing, um, which you address in your book, Excluded. Um, You write in that book about how people who face exclusion within feminism or queer activism we will focus on challenging the specific isms that are understood to be driving the exclusion, such as sexism, transmisogyny, heterosexism, racism, classism, ableism, sizism, all of which is crucial ongoing work. And then you say, but honestly, sometimes I feel like we're all playing one giant game of whack-a-mole. As soon as we make gains challenging a particular type of exclusion, another type arises or becomes apparent. So while we make significant inroads in challenging certain isms, as a whole, the phenomenon of exclusion continues unabated." And you write about your focus on this underlying question of why movements who would so obviously benefit from strength in numbers, um, exclude people who have the shared goal and commitments to challenging sexism could you speak to where that quest, that driving question has led you
2: sure yeah and when and I talk about this a lot um, after that point that's the beginning of section two of excluded where I kind of put forward a bunch of different ideas that I hope will help us maybe get around of, of the, the underlying source of where all this exclusion tends to come from. And I think that what we do, and when I say we, I mean activists, um, I think that there's a lot of different, there's a lot of marginalization that's out there that comes in all these different forms and in different spaces It might look different. And if you're a person, and I think for me, this is really kind of obvious. Um, I sometimes describe myself as a bisexual femme tomboy trans woman, which is a a kind of a little bit of a mouthful of an identity. But by that, I mean because I'm bisexual, people will read my sexual orientation different in different contexts. People, because I'm a femme tomboy, sometimes they'll read me as a tomboy. Sometimes they'll read me as more feminine. Um, And a trans woman, sometimes people read me as cisgender. Sometimes they know that I'm transgender. And each of those situations, they treat me very differently. And so in thinking about this, I, I, thought, I thought it might be more convenient. Not all the time. I think it's really important for us to say, oh, this is what sexism looks like. This is what racism looks like, et cetera. But I think when we do that, I think it's like looking up at the sky and seeing all these stars and then saying, see that? That's the Big Dipper. And see that? That's Orion. And that's really useful because now I know what the Big Dipper and Orion are. I otherwise wouldn't notice those stars. But there are all these other stars that we haven't named yet. And so I, I talk about in the book, this idea of myriad double standards, the idea that there are lots of different double standards, some of which maybe uh, may, may have long histories or may be really, really prevalent, and then other ones you might be in some queer space and there's this weird double standard in that space that you don't experience at all in the straight world, but in this little subculture, it exists. And the usefulness of this is if we learn how to identify when double standards are happening, we can kind of notice when there there are hierarchies going on when certain people are being marginalized or excluded from our spaces or our movements. Um, A lot of this in the book, I talk about it in terms of um, the the marked versus unmarked distinction, which I didn't invent, but I found really useful for thinking about how when a person is marked in a particular setting, um, when they're not seen as part of the dominant majority who are taken for granted, there are these things that regularly happen where you become remarkable and you're seen as questionable. Um, People suspect you of things. People will often mystify you. Um, And and there are these things that come up over and over again with all marginalized groups. Um, While every marginalized group has a different history and deals with different stereotypes, I think the marked versus unmarked distinction um, is shared by all of them. And I also talk in the book about methods of invalidation, about ways that we knock people down a peg. Um, For example, the idea that you're not real, that you're artificial, comes up over and over again. Um, The idea that uh, marginalized or marked groups are seen as not mentally competent um, or able to make decisions for themselves happens over and over again. So anyway, in the book, I, I go through all these separately um, and I don't think that this should replace us talking about sexism or racism or ableism, but I think that it's a really useful technique for us to both see connections between different forms of marginalization and also to recognize when something bad is happening, when people are um, excluding or marginalized people within a particular setting.
1: And in terms of analyzing some of these different forces that lead to exclusion, but also to and to homogenization of ways that resistance can look, or that feminist theory and practice can look, um, you advocate for a shift from homogenizing to holistic views of gender and sexuality. Um, how are you using holistic? <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, I'm using it in a couple different ways. Um, And I wasn't really sure whether or not to use that term, but it just sort of came out based upon, um, as I was writing Excluded, um, it sort of fit a number of different ideas in the book. Um, So one of them, which we've already touched on, is um, thinking about gender and sexuality outside of a nature versus nurture construct and recognizing that biology and biological variation as well as shared culture, but also individual experiences, um, all come together in um, unfathomably complex ways to make people mm. fall all over the spectrum with regards to sex, gender, and sexuality. Mm. Um, so I think of that as a more holistic way, rather than thinking about um, homogenizing views, where if you think about, um, well, biology makes men and women these ways, or if you think about uh, a more nurture idea of, well, people are socialized to be this way or that way. It's, it's kind of moving beyond that because it's more complicated than that. Um, also, what I was just talking about, about the myriad double standard idea, is I think of holistic in that it's a way of considering types of marginalization that may be going on that we maybe don't have names for yet, um, but that exist in the universe. Um, so that was definitely another way of, um, another thing that I was thinking about. And And the third aspect of it, which sort of comes out of, both of the other ones, is that if you acknowledge that we people fall all over the map with regards to, you know, and again, I'm talking a lot because because of the nature of me as a trans feminist talking a lot about gender sexuality, but this is true for all aspects of our person, that we all fall all over the map, we have different backgrounds, we Um, have different life experiences. And so because of that, each of us has a very, very specific view of the world, a very specific vantage point. And so holistic meaning recognizing that other people have different vantage points and that um, to just try to get beyond this idea that we all have tendencies toward, I know I did when I was first getting involved in activism, where the way that I see the world is the truth and the way you see the world is wrong and it's influenced by patriarchy and the gender binary and it, it, it sort of creates this idea where you know, you're know, you this infallible activist and they're this ignorant oppressor. Uh-huh. Um, and, and that happens over and over again. So I want to kind of move beyond that. So those are some of the ways in which I used um, holistic. And I think part of the idea is that at certain instances, I think we will not agree on what the world looks like, because it looks different to each of us. Mm -hmm. But um, hopefully allowing lots of different perspectives um, who still all have a stake in overcoming sexism and marginalization um, to be able to come together, even though we don't 100% agree um, on some minor issues, as long as we can be on the same page about trying to challenge um, hierarchies and double standards. I think that that's what's important.
1: Hmm. Um, you were working on Whipping Girl, and it the first edition was published in 2007, so just over a decade ago. Um, and we're writing on this, about this, these issues, at a time when there was much less uh, respectful representation of transgender people in the media, much less, um, self-representation in the media, Um, could you talk about what you see as some of the significant shifts that have happened over the past decade, both in terms of mainstream media, but I'm also curious to ask in terms of within the field of psychology, right, and also in terms of trans-competency within the medical field?
2: Sure. So I would say first for the media, because that's, I think, the first thing that a lot of us think of when we think about things that have changed. Um, I, I think the media is still very much a mixed bag. <laughs> I think the most important thing that has happened in the media is that it's now acknowledged that um, that trans people can speak for trans people. That's kind of a new thing over the last 10 years, um, where not only are trans news stories covered, but a lot of times the reporters reporting on these issues are trans themselves. There are people who have a stake in the community and understand the community. Um, and so while they're still, when it comes to your average movie or TV show, um, a lot of times there are still really bad depictions. Sometimes you'll still have talk shows where the, the hosts are very kind of ignorant about trans issues or use inappropriate an language and so, so on, at least now trans people have a voice and we're able to speak for ourselves in the media. So that's, um, I think, the most important thing that's happened in that realm. Um, um, can I ask just on oh, that sure.
1: note with yeah. with just some of the um, high-profile visibility of uh, celebrities like Laverne Cox, Janet Mock, um, Caitlyn Jenner, um, how do you see some of that media focus on some, on celebrities um, in terms of opening space for nuanced representations and or kind of reinforcing some problematic yeah. <laughs> views? Um, there was a point a couple years
2: ago where I felt like we were really, really super duper lucky because the three trans people, the three most famous trans celebrities, for like a little window of time there, were Laverne Cox, Mm. Janet Mock, and then uh, Laura Jane Grace uh, from The Band Against Mm. Me, all of whom have really, really amazing um, progressive Um, and intersectional credentials who knew that when they were talking, they weren't speaking for the whole community, Mm -hmm. um, who would talk about some of the more marginalized aspects of the community. Um, And that was this really, really awesome window of time that ended (laughs) um, when the Caitlyn Jenner uh, thing happened. And so, you know, for Caitlyn Jenner as a person, you know, I wish her the best Um, politically, her views fall very, very outside the, the norm for most transgender people, and obviously her experiences as someone who is mega, mega rich, um, that I would say that the fact that there was so much media attention on her um, was really, really unfortunate for the movement um, because she really couldn't speak on behalf of the community because she wasn't really in the community. She kind of was a famous person who transitioned, which is fine, and again, I wish her all the best, but she didn't represent the community very well. Um, And I do think that that sort of set us back for a bit, and it took it away from trans people talking about real, issues and real experiences and and turned the lens back towards where things were in the old Jerry Springer days of kind of the spectacle of transgender people. Um, and so I would say that was an unfortunate setback. Um, she's definitely not in the media nearly as much as before. And I think the media, I think, has kind of moved on from her a bit, which I think is a good good for everyone involved. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: Um, And in terms of some of the shifts in some of the scientific fields, or particularly medicine and psychology, what have been significant in this last decade since you were writing Whipping Girl? I
2: mean, I would say that uh, what has happened in trans health more generally over the last... It's been happening for about two decades, but it's really manifested itself um, in the last decade, has been really, really amazing. Um, There has been a a general shift away from what has historically been called the gatekeeper model, which is this idea that if you're a trans person, you would have to go and convince several um, trans health professionals, many of whom had very, very rigid ideas about gender, And I talk about it at great length in Whipping Girl. Um, For a time, it was they would expect you, after transitioning, to be a heterosexual feminine woman or masculine man, and if not, you wouldn't be allowed to transition. Um, So that was kind of the old model, and I critique a lot of that in Whipping Girl. But over time, especially kind of as a new generation of trans health professionals, came in. And I think that this is part of a more general trend in health, moving away from like the doctor knows best attitude and towards more recognizing that people's experiences are valid, um, learning to kind of help people where they are, and also the idea in research that the research you're doing should have some kind of benefit to the community that you're researching. Mm-hmm. <laughs> which which kind of 50 years ago nobody was thinking about that and now that's generally people are are highly aware of that and so that has led to um a situation where that plus kind of education where now i would say most of the trans health profession has moved toward the right direction or is in the right direction already there are still some people kind of of the old guard who are still around um and there's also this issue where, because tra- there's a lot more trans people out there now, because there's more trans awareness, more trans people are kind of interacting with the healthcare system. There is a situation where there probably aren't as many people knowledgeable about what to do if their patient comes out to them as trans um, than they should be, but we're moving in that direction, which I think is really important. Um, And so, yeah, that has been, and especially even like just 10 years ago, they were working on the new DSM, which is the so-called psychiatric bible, um, where there are two specific trans-related diagnoses in there. Um, And they were, one was slightly improved, one was made worse. Um, But now, if you were to If they were, they're not going to do it now, but if they were to work on a new DSM now because of kind of the changing in views, I highly doubt that either of those diagnoses would be as bad as they are now. Um, So so yeah, so in general, there's been positive changes even if it's not all
1: perfect right now. Mm -hmm. And what do you see in terms of where we're at now in our national political moment as some of the key front lines for trans feminism in terms of and like where you hope there would be a lot of dedication of energy and collective energy and resource
2: yeah um so with regards to trans feminism
1: specifically
2: I would say that I don't think that there's a lot of mainstream awareness at all of trans feminism per se um, I, I definitely think within feminism and within uh, you know queer activism within social justice movements there is a lot more awareness and respect for trans people and knowledge about trans feminism um but i still think it's right now a little bit of a 201 or 301 issue that i think a lot of people kind of in the mainstream public have very little awareness in fact i think that they would probably be confused by the idea of like mm. you know they they see feminism as like well feminism that's that women's thing and then trans activism for trans people. I mean, a lot of people can't get beyond like just very specific thinking about individual identities separately. Um, and so with regards to in general kind of uh, trans activism and progress it's made, again, there, there has been a lot of progress made specifically with regards to awareness. And I feel that awareness can be useful. But I think it only gets you so far. Like I think making people aware that trans people exist is necessary first step, but it gets people to this level of what I think of as um, to the toleration level. Like so, a lot of people be like, "Oh, okay, transgender people exist. Caitlyn Jenner's on TV. Okay." They might not be happy with it, but they don't necessarily—they're not necessarily invested in trans rights. Um, and there's actually research that shows if you create awareness around trans people, for instance, um, it will bring down the level of transphobia that they might express, but it doesn't help with kind of getting to trans rights. And I think that that is where we are now. And so I feel that um, part of the problem is with the awareness has come a backlash from primarily social conservatives, but also um, some of these other people, such as the, the trans-exclusive radical feminist people, um, and others who do not see trans people as valid, who see us actually as kind of like a threat, to, existential threat to society, um, and because of that, there's just been a ton of both proposed legislation and Trump administration um, policies, or repealing of old mm-hmm. Obama policies um, that that created some progress for trans people. So I think it's sort of a, a scary time because of this backlash, but I think the backlash is happening because of the progress we made. Um, so that's sort of a mixed bag. I would like to think that things will get better <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and that there will be more forward mm-hmm. progress and that there will always be some people who maybe um, won't come around, um, but that the majority of people will recognize that we are valid and that we should be treated equitably.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, One approach or one element of some strategies, like anti-oppression strategies or strategies for collective liberation um, can be to appeal to the dominant or privileged group. To say, like, while this system advantages you, it's also dehumanizing you or limiting your humanity in some way. To show, like, how ways that men have so much to gain by joining in the fight against sexism. Or uh, for white anti racist practice to look at some of the costs of racism to white people's humanity on cultural levels, interpersonal levels, spiritual levels, et cetera. Um, within a system of white supremacy that, of course, advantages them. Um, in terms of some of the m- many ways to challenge transphobia um, and cissexism and heterosexism, what would you say are the costs of cis-hetero cisheteropatriarchy to straight cis people?
2: Yeah. Um, it's kind of interesting in that Um, with the the activism that that first got me interested or when I was first kind of coming out as transgender and I was reading a lot of 1990s era activism. And 1990s era transgender activism actually um, addressed this quite a bit. And while that a lot of these writings are from a different time period and everything that's in them wouldn't necessarily resonate with us today, um, one of the things that a lot of... Um, those activists did was drawing connections between you know like I'm a trans person and these are my experiences and these experiences show you that a this whole gender system is really screwed up like you know this is a really ridiculous system that we're all involved in and then drawing connections to how every single person has their lives kind of uh, Influenced by, in, in very negative ways, by this gender binary, by the idea that, you know, drawing connections between, you know, what I might experience as a transgender person and then lesser degree, but just as real situations where if you're a cisgender woman or man, you can slightly color outside of the box. You know, if you're a man who cries or you're a woman who, like, uh, you know, dresses in in sort of a butcher tomboyish way. People will make all of these comments about you, um, suggesting that there's something wrong with you, that you're not a real woman or man. Um, and basically, what these are 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 manifestations of the same gender system that really extremely impacts transgender people and gender nonconforming people, but actually influences all of us. Um, All of us are very much constrained by the tons of assumptions and expectations and different meanings that are projected on our bodies because people are reading us as a man or as a woman and expecting us to live up to those expectations. So I definitely think that that's something, I think a lot of the more recent progress trans people have made has been through kind of a more traditional, I hate to say identity politics, because people have like taken this word mm-hmm. and done all sorts of horrible things with it lately. Um, people are very, very acti- ac- anti-social justice activism have taken identity politics. and But what we used to call identity politics, which just means like organizing around an identity. Um, and And there are some issues with the ways that that can be carried out. But I, I think that there's something about that that sort of resonates with people. Like they get that, OK, oh, you're a transgender person. OK, you're like part of a discriminated group. Um, and I would like to see us make more connections to how um, what we face is coming from the same system that they're experiencing. And and I, I will just say that if you would have told me, like. 20 years ago that trans people would have made the progress we did in society, I would have been startled, I would have been dumbfounded, but if you would have told me that all that has done hardly anything to kind of change mainstream ideas about gender, I would have been very disappointed. Mm -hmm. So maybe that's something that we can work on more moving forward.
1: Um, By way of closing, um, we had talked about you sharing a spoken word piece, a performance piece. Would you be willing to yeah, do that? Thank sure, you so yeah. much. I
2: yeah. should say this is, um, I, I created this piece, I wrote it for a show called Fresh Meat, which is a trans and queer um, variety show that happens every year, it's actually happening next month, um, it's still going on, and uh, it ended up being a chapter in Excluded, and it, it touches upon a lot of the ideas that we sort of have discussed, so I'll just go into it. If one more person tells me that all genders' performance, I think I'm going to strangle them. What's most annoying about that soundbite is the way it's often recited in a somewhat snooty, I took a gender studies class and you didn't sort of way, which is ironic given the way that phrase dumbs down gender. It is a crass oversimplification that's as ridiculous as saying that all genders' genitals, all genders' chromosomes, or all genders' socialization. In reality, gender is all of these things and more. In fact, if there's one thing that every person in this room should be able to agree on, it's that gender is a confusing and complicated mess. It's like a junior high school mixer, where our bodies and our internal desires awkwardly dance with one another (laughs) and with the expectations that other people place on us. Sure, I can perform gender. I can curtsy or throw like a girl or bat my eyelashes if I want. But performance doesn't explain why certain behaviors and ways of being come to me more naturally than others. It offers no insight into the countless restless nights I spent as a preteen rest- wrestling with the inexplicable feeling that I should be female. Performance doesn't explain the very real and physical and psychological changes I experience when I hormonally transition from testosterone to estrogen. Performance doesn't even begin to address the fact that during my transition, I acted the same. I wore the same t-shirts, sneakers, and jeans that I always had, yet once other people started reading me as female, they began treating me very differently. When we talk about my gender as a performance, we let the audience, with all their expectations, prejudices, and presumptions, completely off the hook. Look, I know that many contemporary queer folks and feminists embrace mantras like, all gender is performance, all gender is drag, and gender is just a construct. They seem empowered, by the way, that these sayings give the impression that gender is merely a fiction, a facade, a figment of our imagination. And of course, this is a convenient strategy, provided that you're not a trans woman who lacks the means to legally change her sex to female and who thus runs the very real risk of being locked up in an all-male jail cell. Provided that you're not a trans man who has to navigate the discrepancy between his male identity and female history during job interviews and first dates. Whenever I meet someone who is not a transsexual, who um, say that gender is just a construct or merely a performance, it always reminds me of that old Stephen Colbert gag where he insists that he doesn't see race. It's easy to fictionalize an issue when you're not fully in touch with all the ways in which you're privileged by it. Almost every day of my life, I have to deal with people who insist on seeing my femaleness as fake. People who make a point of calling me effeminate rather than feminine. People who slip up my pronouns, but only after they find out I'm trans, never beforehand. People who try to third gender me with labels like boy-girl, he-she, she-male, MTF, anything but simply female. Because I'm transsexual, I've been accused of impersonation and deception when I'm simply being myself. So it seems to me that the strategy of fictionalizing gender will only ever serve to marginalize me further. So I ask you, can't we find new ways of speaking? Shouldn't we be championing new slogans that empower all of us, whether trans or non-trans, queer or straight, female and or male and or none of the above? Instead of saying that all gender is this or all gender is that, let's admit that the word gender has scores of meanings built into it. It's an amalgamation of bodies, identities, and life experiences, subconscious urges, sensations, and behaviors, some of which develop organically, but others that are shaped by language and culture. Instead of saying that gender is any one given thing, let's start describing it as a holistic experience. Instead of saying that all genders performance, let's admit that sometimes gender is an act, but other times it isn't. And since we can't get inside one another's minds, we have no way of knowing whether any given person's gender is sincere or contrived. Let's fess up to the fact that when we make judgments about other people's genders, we're typically basing on our own assumptions. And you know what, you, you know what happens when you assume, right? Let's stop claiming that certain genders and sexualities reinforce the gender binary. In the past, that tactic has been used to dismiss butches and femmes, bisexuals, trans folks and our partners, and feminine people of every persuasion. Gender isn't simply some faucet that we can turn on and off in order to appease other people. Whether they be heterosexist bigots, or queerer than thou hipsters. <laughs> that, that's the round. <laughs> How about this? Let's stop pretending that we have all the answers, because when it comes to gender, none of us is omniscient. Instead of trying to fictionalize gender, let's talk about all the moments in life where gender feels all too real. Because gender doesn't feel like drag, when you're a young trans child begging your parents not to cut your hair, or not to force you to wear that dress. And gender doesn't feel like a performance when for the first time in your life you feel safe and empowered enough to express yourself in ways that resonate with you rather than remaining closeted for the benefit of others. And gender doesn't feel like a construct when you finally meet that special person whose body, personality, identity, and energy feels like a perfect fit with yours. Instead of trying to deconstruct gender into non-existence, let's start celebrating it as inexplicable, varied, profound, and intricate. So don't dare dismiss my gender as a construct, drag, or performance, because my gender is a work of nonfiction. Thanks.
0: You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrere at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.